some scripture uh, concerning baptism, water baptism. And um, I would like to just share um, the fact that water baptism is designed for at least five purposes, according to the scripture. I'll just mention them right now, um, but then I'll, we'll look at them one at a time. <clears throat> Water baptism is designed, uh, according to the scriptures, for at least these five purposes. It is a rite or ceremony by which uh, people are received into the visible church. Number two, it is typical of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Number three, it typifies remission uh, or forgiveness of sins. Number four, it is the answer of a good conscience toward God. And number five, it is an act of obedience. So, we want to have a little Bible study here and look at some scriptures concerning uh, these five points. And I invite you to take your Bible in hand and uh, let's see what the scripture has to say. Uh, we will begin with um, what, what is known as the Great Commission. And that is uh, what we read at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. So, Matthew chapter 28. <clears throat> now... Um, as we look at some of these scriptures, you will notice that, that some of them overlap. Some of them have a, a, a couple of these points all, all in, in one or all at the same place. <clears throat> Matthew uh, chapter 28, verses 18, 19, and 20, beginning with verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. You might notice that on uh, both sides of baptism, the baptism being, of course, mentioned there in verse 19, on both sides of the baptism there, he mentions teaching, teaching. And we certainly endeavor to, to do that. Uh, uh, hopefully, we're, we're learning right now. We're, we're teaching, uh, you know, older ones. Uh, I'm teaching myself as I look into the scriptures, and we're, we're learning, we're having a Bible study here right now. That's after most of you have been baptized. That's in your continuing life. And we, uh, we, uh, we teach the younger ones in many ways before they come to know the Lord and make a personal commitment to him. And then we have instruction classes with them before they're baptized and received into the visible body. <clears throat> so it is um, a rite or ceremony by which people are received into the visible uh, church. And like I say, you'll probably notice that in a couple of these other scriptures that, that we look at. Well, number two, it is typical of baptism, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or it is a type of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians and chapter 12. And just one verse, that is verse 13. Verse 13, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been, have been all made to drink into one spirit. By the spirit we are baptized. The verse says. And water baptism then. Is, uh, is used. 
to be a type of or typify spirit baptism. Um, Water and spirit baptism are closely connected in both the teachings and practice of the early church. So there's various scriptures where you see spirit baptism and water baptism right closely connected. Uh, We could look at at some of those scriptures. Um, Let's... uh, Let's go back to Matthew, and then we'll look at several places in, in the Acts. But uh, first of all, um, concerning um, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew and uh, chapter 3. <clears throat> and verse um, 11. We're thinking of the fact how water baptism and spirit baptism um, are so closely connected in the teachings and and practice of the scriptures here. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11 says this, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. Of course, this is John the Baptist speaking here. Continuing with the verse, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So there, John the Baptist put them right together. I can only baptize you with water, he was saying. But there's one coming that will baptize you with the Spirit. Of course, he was talking about Jesus. Um, Now, let's look at... at, uh, a few places in, in the book of Acts. Um, Acts, first of all, in chapter, chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And verse 5. Acts chapter 1, verse 5. As you see, Jesus is it's quoting Jesus here. Verse 5. For John truly baptized with water. But ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. There Jesus said it right together. Turn over to chapter 10. Chapter 10 and beginning at verse 44. Acts 10 beginning at verse 44. While Peter yet spake these things, Words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water? that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. There you have it again. Water baptism and spirit baptism right together. First of all, spirit baptism, and then Peter said they should be baptized with water. Uh, one more yet. We're right here in, at, next to chapter 11. Look at verses uh, 15 and 16 of chapter 11. Verse 15. By the way, as you can see here, um, we have um, the time when God helped Peter to see that uh, the gospel was for the Gentiles also. Verse 15. And as I spake, began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. 
We'll continue now to number three, but that is number two. Remember number two. Water baptism is uh, typical uh, of Holy Spirit baptism. It's a type of. Now, number three. Water baptism, uh, it typifies the remission or forgiveness of sins. Uh, while we're this close to, to chapter 22, let's, let's turn over to chapter 22 of, of Acts. Um, <clears throat> chapter 22 of Acts. And just one verse, verse uh, 16. Now, as you see here, it's one of those places where uh, uh, Paul, Paul is retelling his conversion experience. Acts 22, and just one verse we'll read, verse 16. And now, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. It typifies the forgiveness of sins. It's only a type. Now, you know as well as I that putting water on these people won't wash away their sins. It won't even touch their hearts. It won't touch their minds. Uh, we get it pretty close to their minds, but, <laughs> but no, it won't. But it is a sign. It is typical. of. It typifies. Just like this verse suggests. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord. He will forgive. There will be remission of your sins if you do it with the, with the right attitude, you know, with calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, you'll be forgiven. There will be remission of sins. Uh, the water of baptism typifies that. Now, another whole subject then is this thing of, of uh, the cleansing of water. And you could go into Old Testament cleansings and so forth, but we won't go into that today. <clears throat> of course, we do know water is a very good thing to, to clean up with, to wash with. It certainly is. <clears throat> uh, okay, turn all the way back to the beginning of, of Acts, just one verse yet. Acts, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And verse uh, 38, Acts 2, 38, then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. It typifies, we're saying, the remission or forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> now, number four. Water baptism is designed uh, for the purpose of uh, uh, giving a... Uh, uh, an answer of a good conscience toward God. It is the answer, it should be the answer of a good conscience toward God. Now those are the direct words from the scriptures and let's, let's turn to, to that and look at it. It's in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter and chapter 3. Uh, Peter was, um, at this point, was talking about, uh, was reminding us of the Noah and, and the flood of that day. 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll just read one verse, and that is verse 21. Verse 21, the like figure, you see, he, he always, right at the beginning of the verse there, he, he, he always, he, I mean, he, he already, or says right up front there, uses a good term, it's a figure, it's a type, it's a figure, it typifies something. The like figure... Whereunto even baptism, 
doth also now save us. Now, he, he couldn't stop right there, and he didn't. And so look at what it says next. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It will not wash away sins. Did we say that already? But it's for a purpose. It typifies something. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. We're baptizing these four this morning, and in doing that, they're saying, I have a good conscience toward God. My heart is right with God, and I want to indicate that through this ceremony of water baptism. It's the answer, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. And then the verse continues by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's consider number five yet. Water baptism is designed for these, uh, at least these five things. And number five this morning, it is an act of obedience. It is something that we do in obedience to the scriptures, in obedience to, uh, to Jesus and his words, in obedience to uh, the Holy Spirit uh, writing through, through the writers of the scripture. Um, while we're, well, let's see. Let's, let's go back to Matthew, and then we'll look at one place in, in, in Acts. But Matthew chapter 3. Matthew in chapter 3. <clears throat> so here is where Jesus was baptized. And as we read here, you will remember, of course, how, how this was. Jesus asked John to baptize him, and John didn't want to. I, I mean, John said... Jesus, you should be baptizing me, not, not me baptizing you. Uh, you remember that, but let's just see how, how it's recorded here in the scriptures. Matthew chapter 3, uh, verses uh, 13 to 15, beginning at verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying... I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him, or then he permitted him. We don't have all the details here, but um, apparently Jesus uh, knew that um, it was God's will and for the purposes, as, uh, purposes of, um, of, of a good example and uh, uh, typifying the Holy Spirit and so forth and so on, that Jesus knew that he should be baptized. And John naturally didn't... You know, I already said that John thought he should, Jesus should baptize him, not the other way. Um, uh, and yet uh, Jesus uh, knew that he should be baptized. And he asked John to baptize him. And uh, so Jesus received baptism in obedience to the Father, I believe. Uh, John obeyed Jesus by baptizing him. And um, so, yes, um, we already read, and I didn't point it out, but one of the places we read this morning... Uh, I believe it was Peter, uh, commanded um, that certain ones be baptized. Peter knew that it was the thing to do if a person had, was had, uh, making their hearts right with, with God through Jesus Christ, that the right thing to do was to baptize, to ba to baptize them. And the word commanded was used in one of the scriptures we, we already read. So it's an act of obedience. Let's look then. At just one other place, and that is in the early church in Acts chapter 10. Acts in chapter 10. <clears throat> Acts in chapter 10. Um, and yes, I, I read these verses already. Um, but um, in light of looking at it uh, for the purpose of... Uh, it is an act of obedience. Let me read them again. 
Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them which heard the word, and they of the circumcisions which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. So it is an act of obedience to the scriptures, to God and his will, to Jesus and to the scriptures. Well, let's try to remember uh, those things. There may be other purposes that uh, even that we haven't looked at, but at least these five, uh, water baptism is designed for, for at least these things. It is a rite or a ceremony by which people are received into the visible church. It is typical of Holy Spirit baptism. It typifies uh, the remission of sins. It is an answer of a good conscience toward God, and it is an act of obedience. Before we go further, I would like for us to kneel together to pray. Uh, Shall we kneel at this time? I greet you, brothers and sisters, in the powerful name of Jesus. It's his blood that never loses its power. In fact, uh, the old song says, it's still the blood that saves from sin. It's still the blood that cleanses within, that gives peace within. From the highest star in heaven to the depths of the sea, it's still the blood of Jesus that brings victory to me. And I claim that, and I trust you've experienced that. And so we meet in his name this morning, and that's a powerful thing. I invite you to Hebrews chapter 12. We would like to consider some verses here. In fact, I've titled uh, these few minutes here, Communion, a Time to Consider. A Time to Consider. And our text verses are verses 1 through 3 of Hebrews chapter 12. It reads this way. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Consider him. Communion, I say, is a time to consider. It's a time to consider ourselves. But much more than that, it's a time to consider Him. A time to consider the Lord Jesus Christ. For consider Him. One of the major themes that jumps out to me as I read through this portion of Scripture is that of endurance. Endurance. And we see that here in the first three verses. Uh, The last part of verse 1, let us run with patience, or let us run with perseverance, with endurance. Verse 2 speaks about Jesus who endured the cross. Verse 3, he also endured contradiction of sinners, endurance. And in fact, if we go back to Hebrews chapter 11, we, we, we read there of the heroes of faith as we sometimes refer to them. Examples of faith, you could say. But really, I say they're examples of endurance. They're examples of people who endured 
against, you could say, great odds. And yet, they endured. And let's just note the last few verses of chapter 11, uh, starting at verse 32. It says, And what shall I more say? For the time should fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and David also and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had a trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy." They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. And it speaks there of people who endured, greatly endured. (laughs) What a picture. And it speaks there at the end of that chapter of, of those who... They all obtained a good report of faith, yet they did not receive the promise. Or yet, they did, not, they did not actually obtain that within their life. It reflects back to verse 13, where we read, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And so... Yes, in their lifetime, they did not actually see that promise come to pass. And yet, by faith, they believed it. Therefore, they endured with that in mind. That was their focus. Well, then, we have those ones in our minds. And we move right on into verse 1 of chapter 12, then. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with such a great a cloud of witnesses, or in other words, it means there are so many, many witnesses, as many as the clouds, you could say. Let us lay aside. Let us run with patience. You know, the words of Scripture are not simply a, a history lesson to teach us a story, to tell us a story. Now, that's not what they're all about. Certainly they do tell us stories of many people in the past. But one of the purposes of Scripture is to compel all people down through the ages to lives of commitment to Jesus Christ. And so as we move into chapter 12 here, it becomes very clear that we are not only reading about examples of endurance, but we are being called to join this list of those who endured to the end. Here's an example of many people. Now, it's about us. We also. Let us. Let us. Let us. Let us. Just as they let us. I note that verses 1 and 3, they begin and they end with me. They begin and they end with me. But at the center of these two verses, we find the source of our ability to endure. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the central factor. He is the power that enables us to endure. I find it significant to note that the example of Jesus is not just simply listed in with all the others in chapter 11. But the Hebrew writer purposefully sets it apart as the greatest example of endurance ever known to man. He sets it apart. Jesus, the one who endured the cross. Jesus, the one who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. And then we are called to consider him. And we read that by considering him, that will keep us from growing weary, from losing heart in our race of faith. Consider him, lest you become weary 
and faint in your minds. Let's look just a bit closer at the four phrases that we find in verse 2. The four phrases that we find in verse 2. We'll sort of take this verse apart somewhat and look into it just a bit. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And this has everything to do with recognizing where the power comes from. Looking unto Jesus. No, it's not. We do not find our ability to endure in what I can do. In in how strong I am. Or how I can make up my mind. Or my giftings that God has given me. That's not where we find the strength to endure the Christian life. But we find it in the solid and unchanging God and His Word. That's where we find it. And as we faithfully fix our eyes on Him, we find His strength sufficient to carry us on through the ups and downs of life. We certainly do. We find His strength sufficient to carry us across the finish line in this race of faith, you could say. He's the author of our faith. And as the author of our faith... He is the one who has begun that work within us. He is the originator of that. He is the one who is going before us. He is the captain. He is the prince, you could say. He is the chief leader. He is the author of our faith. And as the finisher of our faith, he is the one who completes it. He is the one who perfects it within us. And we can be confident, as was the Apostle Paul, uh, we read in Philippians 1 verse 6, that he he that hath begun a good work within us will perform it or complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's begun that work. He's the author. He will complete that work within us. He is the finisher. He is the one who perfects it. Perform is to, to carry on to completion. And so, as the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ is the one who begins it within us. He is the one who carries it on. He is the one who perfects it. You know, I find that so empowering for for my own Christian life that not only did Jesus run the race, not only do we have his example as one who endured, but yet he also today runs with us in our race. What power, what comfort, what strength that should give us. That No, we are not running alone. We are running with, with the champion runner. We are running with the one who, who went before us. And yes, he empowers us to run. And then we see who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You know, as in any earthly race, there is glory in going all the way with God. There is glory in going all the way with God. You know, I noticed that Jesus came to earth on a mission. And that mission was not for himself. Not at all. That mission was for the Father. He came according to the will of the Father. He came to please the Father. And his attitude all the way was, I am come to do thy will, O God. That was his attitude as he came to minister and to carry out the will of the Father. And yet he knew full well that the cross was, you could say, the crux of the Father's will. That was the point. That was the point. The cross. But yet he willingly went all the way for the joy that was set before him, or you could say for the glory that would follow. He went all the way. Just note a couple of verses here. Luke 24, 26, uh, that speaks of what Jesus had to say about going all the way and what he knew would follow 
as he did the will of the Father. Luke 24, 26, here we have the story of him speaking uh, to the two men on the road to Emmaus. And he said to them, he said, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? In other words, Jesus was well aware that a part of the glory to come was the suffering that had to happen firsthand. And then we also note in John chapter 17, turn to John chapter 17, and here is uh, the high priestly prayer as we often refer to it. We just studied this perhaps last Sunday in our Sunday school lessons. I'd like to, to just pull out several verses here that speak of Jesus going all the way for the joy that was set before him. In other words, to bring glory to the Father. Verse 1, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Jesus was looking down the road. You could say he was looking past the cross to the glory, to the joy that he would experience by fulfilling the will of the Father. Some time ago, I was reading in this devotional Days of Praise uh, that is put out by Institute for Creation Research. I find their little devotionals very, very fascinating. They pack a lot of scripture into the little daily devotionals. And the one day brought out sort of a new concept for me. And the title of it was, What Christ's Death Meant to Him. (laughs) What Christ's Death Meant to Him. The verse that went along with it was Titus 2.14. It reads, Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. And it goes on to say this. If one were to ask why Jesus died, the average evangelical would usually say that he died to save us from our sins. And it is true that Christ died for our sins, but this is not the whole answer by any means. Too many Christians think of the death of Christ only in terms of what it meant for them, not what it meant to him. Our text says that he died for us and redeemed us from iniquity, not just to keep us from going to hell, but to purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. We who have been saved by the redeeming death of Christ for our sins often thank him for what he has done for us, and we should. But we also should thank him for what he has thereby done for himself and then seek always to live in such a way that his holy purpose is accomplished in our lives. I found that fascinating and a little bit different perspective than I often think. I guess I'm that average evangelical (laughs) that they speak about there. But yes, not only has Christ done much for us, but thereby he has done much for himself, purifying unto himself a people of good works and zealous after him. He endured the cross. Let's think just for a moment about that. He endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And that's not just any endurance, as you well know. But the cross, I would say, was not just that simple act of crucifixion. (laughs) Simple. But But it was the package that he went through surrounding that whole crucifixion experience. He was spit on. He was slapped. He was whipped. He was mocked. Uh, They smashed a big crown of thorns on his head. He was spit on again. He was hit on the head time and time again with a rod. And then he was brutally crucified. Brutally crucified. And yet, he went all the way for the joy that was set before him. I ask you, how far are you willing to go? How far are you willing to go? There is joy, there is glory when we go all the way with God. And then we note in verse 2, despising the shame. Despising the shame. And in today's world, it's so hard 
to truly grasp the shame and the dishonor and the humiliation that was attached to the cross of that day. We just don't have a concept for that because it's so far removed, so far removed. You see, the cross was the most brutal form of punishment. The cross was reserved for the worst of criminals. The cross was designed to produce the terrible kind of suffering, the most terrible kind of suffering ever ever known to man. Mental suffering, emotional suffering, and of course, physical suffering, the worst ever known to man. And we can imagine for a moment or two uh, the victims who hung on a cross. Imagine the time that they spent on the cross. This was not a fast procedure. Imagine the time they spent there. Imagine what all happened while they hung there. Imagine the excruciating pain. Imagine the crowds of people that would gather around them and, and their worst enemies, the ones that, that came back for one final blow at them, you know. Those people gathered around and they're, they're hanging there. Imagine the few that still love them, you know, perhaps their wife or their mother, and, and them hanging there and seeing the tears being shed. Imagine the mental, emotional anguish that went along with that. Imagine the night coming and spending a, the nights on a cross. And I'm told that sometimes, you know, wild animals would roam around. Imagine, just imagine that picture of the cross. That was, it was reserved for terrible people. It was a shameful thing. It was very humiliating, very dishonoring. They were there, completely helpless. You know, the cross was always associated with the worst of the worst of everything. And that's why Paul wrote that Jesus became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. This wasn't just any death. It was the death of the cross. You know, we think of shameful forms of death from years gone by. You know, maybe the the guillotine. The cross was way worse than that. We think of the gallows, people being hung on the gallows. Cross was way worse than that. Oh, we think of today perhaps the electric chair. That's, you know, you don't even like to talk about that. It's so, it goes against us so bad. The cross was way worse than that. The cross was always viewed in a terrible light. And yet, our scripture says that Jesus despised or scorned the shame of the cross. What does that mean? Consider that just a moment. He endured the cross despising its shame or scorning its shame. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, he changed the significance and perception of the cross forever. Forever. The cross, since then the cross has never been looked at in the same light again. Never. No longer does the cross remind us of of dirty criminals and brutality and pain and fear and helplessness and hopelessness. The cross doesn't remind us of those things anymore. No longer does the cross scream of shame, but instead it shouts of salvation. Praise the Lord. That's the cross that we know today because of Jesus. It's now a symbol of things that produce real beauty. Think about that a moment. The cross is now a symbol of things that produce real beauty. You could say, well, yeah, the cross is about death. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, we died of flesh and lived to Christ. That's beautiful. Oh, but the cross is, is painful. Yeah, it is through pain and suffering that we become more like Christ. It's about sacrifice. The cross is about giving up. Yeah, that's how we live <laughs> the Christian life. It's a symbol of things that produce real beauty now. And so we sing songs today that were never possible before. In the cross of Christ I glory. I mean, can you imagine back in that day even thinking such a thought? Or when I survey the wondrous cross. I mean, we would never say when I survey the wondrous electric chair or something. No, but because of Christ, that picture is different. 
And it reminds me, dear people, how Christ is in the redeeming and restoring business. <laughs> he takes things that are so hopeless and helpless, things that, things that are dirty, things that are just, you just give up on them. You don't even like to talk about them. He takes those things and he makes something beautiful with them. He makes something beautiful. In fact, he does that most often to people. <laughs> I hope he's done that with you. Taking something that is useless and worthless and dirty and broken, and he makes something out of it beautiful that honors him and glorifies him and serves his purposes in life. What a joy. And then we read, he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, mission accomplished. It's a beautiful picture of completion. It's a picture of completion. It's a place of honor. It's a position of power. He is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And yet just because he is set down in that place, just because he is set down in that position, does not mean he is merely sitting there. Jesus is by no means sitting on the job. <laughs> no, not by any means. In fact, he is actively involved and he is deeply in touch in a daily way on a very personal level. Jesus is actively involved in our lives. No, he is not merely sitting, but I believe Jesus is oftentimes standing as he earnestly intercedes on our behalf. He is standing before the Father. And my mind goes back to Acts chapter 7 where we read the story of Stephen who was there preaching that powerful message before the Sanhedrin. And we get towards the end of that story and they get very upset with him. They get very upset with him. And this is what Stephen has to say. It just thrills my heart. Stephen said, He, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Jesus wasn't just sitting on the right hand. He was standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. That is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. And I get this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who is there interceding on Stephen's behalf. And Stephen is in a severe spiritual battle at that moment. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ is there going, you can do it, Stephen. Keep going. Keep going. You can endure. I'm with you. And, and Jesus Christ is pulling for him, pulling for him, and, and pleading before the Father to keep him. It's that beautiful picture of intercession and that is the place of the Father, even today, on our behalf. He is interceding for us. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus on his feet for you and me. Verse 3, once again, our text. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Consider him. And I am quick to admit that the Christian life is, is rarely easy. And there's many days when I feel I'm not sure I can endure. <laughs> I'm not sure I can endure. It feels hard. It feels difficult. It feels overwhelming. It looks easier to just do another thing. And the Hebrew writer says, in days like that, think about Jesus. Think about what Jesus went through for you and me. Think that was easy? No. And yet, for the joy that was set before him, he went all the way. I say there's glory in going all the way with God for you and me as well. And so, as we consider this morning what Christ has done for us, may we, may, may we renew our commitment to run that race of faith. To do it faithfully. A very proper response to what Christ has done for us 
is found in a familiar Christmas carol. The last verse says this, Then let us all with one accord sing praises to our heavenly Lord that hath made heaven and earth of naught, and with his blood mankind hath bought. Noel, Noel, or in other words, it's a joyful shout proclaiming the birth of Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus came on a mission, and that was a mission of redemption for you and I. As we consider that this morning, may it spur us on to faithful living. Lord bless you. Before we uh, participate in the washing of the saints' feet, I would like to uh, just point out a a few scriptures on uh, the thought of humility. Um, And so I won't read all the verses in John 13, but I will read maybe just three of those. Um, uh, As we see... Christ humbling himself before the apostles there as he prepared to wash their feet. John 13, just three verses. First of all, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4. He riseth from supper... And laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Verse 14. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. In those first two verses I read, verses 4 and 5, Jesus prepared himself. He laid aside his garments. He was always doing that in a symbolic way. And let's think of the fact, let's think of that as a, as a symbol. Not only he actually did it in this case, but let it be a, a symbol also of, of humbling himself. He was their master, and yet he humbled himself and prepared himself for this special occasion. He he was saying we should relate to each other in humility, in a humble way. He laid aside his garments. His entire life was one of laying aside his garments, as it were. And so I think it's appropriate for us to ask ourselves, what, what are we laying aside to relate in a humble, lowly way to one another? Do we have things that maybe are getting in our way that we should be laying aside that kind of set us apart in a different manner or something from others? Uh, Do we have attitudes and, and wills that need to be laid aside that we could relate in a humble and meek way? better to one another. I wrote down some some verses here that have to do with humility. I would just like to read them for you. This is part of Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8. Talking about Jesus, he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. He did that, uh, that first part came to the likeness of men uh, some 30-some years uh, before he washed their feet, you see. 
He was continually doing that throughout his life, humbling himself, as it were. 1 Peter 5, 5, part of it says this. He clothed, or, or be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Be clothed with humility. With humility. What did Jesus do? He put that towel, that servant towel around him so he could wash and wipe their feet. He clothed himself with humility for that act, for that ceremony. Peter said years later, be clothed with humility. Let's not allow the clothes that we wear to distract from humbleness and humility. Be clothed with humility. James, um, J- James chapter 4 verse 10 says this, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. You want God to hold you up? You want God to lift you up in soul and spirit? You want to feel lifted up in, in heart, in mind? The Bible says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and then he will lift you up. Luke 4, 11 says this, For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased. This was the words of, of Jesus, of course. Whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased or made, or made low. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Also from James chapter 4, and this is part of verse 6. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. And one more, Ephesians 4, part of verses 1 and 2. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness. Jesus put on a towel, a symbol of humble service. Let me just conclude by just reading uh, three or four verses from Colossians chapter 3. And then we will proceed with the washing of the saints' feet. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, read like this. I've said already, and we read, Jesus put on the towel. But before he put on the towel, he took off some outer garments that would get in the way. I'll say it now and then I'll try to repeat it at the end. If you try to put on without first taking off, it doesn't fit very well. And just this morning, just this morning, one of the little grandchildren came down from upstairs still in her night clothes pretty soon she returned and had something else on top <laughs> of that heavy night flannel nighty you know <laughs> it didn't fit very well <laughs> okay Jesus took off and then he put on the towel of humility Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. I haven't given you a homework assignment yet today, have I? (laughs) So here it comes. So go home and look at Colossians chapter 3 and go ahead of where I started reading 
and see the things that first of all you must get out of the way. You must take off. You must put off before you can really put on these things that I just read. If you try to put on without first taking off, it doesn't fit very well. Let's put on humility, not just as we do this this morning, but as we walk from day to day. The song leaders will lead us in, in singing as we proceed with this, and we will be given direction um, in um, washing the saints' feet. <clears throat>